incarnate? What we know from all three accounts is the man does not answer that question. Even though he may have knelt before Jesus, he cannot say that Jesus is the Messiah. He cannot acknowledge that he is the Lord. There is silence. We live in a day and age when people will acknowledge Jesus is godly. They'll call him a great teacher. Some will even admit that Jesus came from God. But what they won't admit is that Jesus is the only Son of God. The Word teaches that. That He is the only Son of God. And the creeds of the ancient church profess that. There is no other like Him. There are those, even within the church, who will say, well, Jesus is my Christological center. What does that mean? Big words. A fancy dance. But ultimately what they're saying is, oh, there are many ways to God. I just prefer to believe in Jesus. Wrong answer. They are like the rich young ruler who can't say he is the one and only God. Now I know if you're not a believer, this is offensive to you. And I don't mean to offend you. But it's what the Scripture says. Thomas Jefferson, who is one of our founders in this country, after he died and they took his Bible out, you know what they found? He had crossed out verses in the Scripture. Anything he didn't like, he just crossed it out. Didn't exist. That's what people like to do today. In John it says, He is the one and only God. And it affirms it elsewhere in Scripture. The truth is, Jesus never gives us the option to say that He was a a good man, a religious man, a great teacher. Jesus constantly kept pointing to himself, although oftentimes we don't understand it because we don't know how to read it within its context, that Jesus was saying to the people, I am the Messiah. They tried to stone him several times. The reason they tried to stone him was because they understood what he was saying. He was saying, I am God. The religious leaders ultimately condemned him to death for that blasphemy, or what they thought was blasphemy, when in fact, he is the Son of God, the only Son of God. He rose from the grave to prove it to us. C.S. Lewis or Josh McDowell, I'm not sure which one it was, said, how can a godly man be godly unless he tells the truth? And if Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah, and he's just like everybody else, how can he be godly? He must be lying. We have no options here. We either submit and believe and acknowledge that he is, or we don't. Submission to Jesus 
is the only acceptable response if we're going to be a disciple. And let me say this further. Submission to Jesus reverses the curse that occurred in the Garden of Eden. When the authority of God was rejected. It is submission to Jesus that restores us to relationship with God again. Submission begins by acknowledging Jesus as God. Here's the second thing about being joyfully submitted. Submission to Jesus is an inward experience or an inward acceptance of Jesus' authority over you that leads to an outward alignment. Now Jesus went on to answer this young man's question. And what he began to say was, okay, inheriting eternal life. You know the Scriptures. And he goes to the holiness code and he begins to list off all of the holiness codes related to how we are to relate to one another except for one. The last one. Thou shalt not covet. Now Jesus could have said that too. But I think he left it out for a reason. I think he wanted to make a point because he knew this young man's heart. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth. And then Jesus said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus presented this young man with the one thing that someone who was covetous would never do, give away everything to the poor. It says this young man became very sad because he was very rich. And I imagine you and I who live in Unbelievable affluence compared to the rest of the world. We can relate to this young man and his response. But let's be clear. Nobody is saved by giving away all of his wealth to the poor. Salvation is not the result of our works. It's a gift from God. And Jesus knew this. He didn't tell him to do this because he wanted him to try to earn it through works. He was trying to show the young man where sin had a hold of his life, where he hadn't turned over his life to the authority of God, where he wasn't fully submitted to God, this was an area for him that needed to be addressed. So Jesus said to him, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. No one is saved by their works. And no one is saved unless he repents of his sin and turns toward God. This young man was unable to do that. What we see is that the treasure of his heart was not eternal life, which he came to ask Jesus about. And it certainly was not Jesus because he couldn't answer the question of who Jesus was. The treasure of this young man's heart was his love of his possessions. 
the Gospels all record that Jesus says in several places that we have a choice to make. A choice between him and whoever or whatever people might treasure above him, including our own lives. Just very briefly, quick scriptures, we all know them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is talking in hyperbole here. He's not saying we're supposed to hate our mother and fathers. The commandments are to honor your mother and father. But he's trying to say, if they're more important than me, you're missing the boat. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now I want to take a minute to just kind of tease out some application here for us with regard to submission and the inner acceptance of Jesus' authority and the outer alignment of our lives with it. I want to point out the difference between submission and obedience. Obedience is the outward compliance to a higher authority. It is outward compliance. But submission is inward acceptance of a higher authority. They are different. The Greek word for submission, hupotasso, literally means to place oneself under. It is a choice that we make to allow someone else to be an authority over us. Is not a choice that is imposed upon us. Now, when we consider the differences between obedience and submission, I want to say that it is possible to be obedient without being submitted. And those who have been captured um, and taken prisoners of conflicts often speak about the fact that their captors made them obey and do what they told them they had to do. But as prisoners, they wouldn't submit inside of themselves to their captors. They remained resistant, even defiant in themselves, even though their captors could make them do almost anything by inflicting physical pain. While it is possible to be obedient without submission, it is never possible to be disobedient when you are submitted. Disobedience reveals that inward submission simply doesn't exist. If you've accepted the authority of another, then you'll obey because you've accepted their authority. And if you don't, then clearly submission isn't a part of that. Now, why is this important for us, this distinction between submission and obedience? Two reasons. First, people often get confused about what God wants and expects of us. A lot of times, 
What people think God wants and expects of us is obedience. It's the very same thing that we want from our little children, isn't it? You know, I remember Dominic growing up. I remember my kids growing up. And, you know, they would... uh, Why do I have to do that? Why? Why? Just do it. Because I said so. Right? So, a lot of people do that with religion. With our relationship with God. That somehow, that's what God wants from us. But, for those of us who are parents and who have kids that aren't still little but have grown up, one of the things that we really want is the heart's of our kids. We want them to trust us and to love us and obey us because they trust and love us. Now, that's true with little kids too. But it becomes much more important when they're older because we do not have the same control over older kids than not. You know, Pastor, Sarah, Elijah's running around and He's like Tim on wheels. And not as easy as he was when he was just crawling. But when he starts driving, you've lost all control. I just wanted to help you out there. (laughs) Hopefully by that time he knows how much you love him and he wants to obey the things that you've provided for him. That's how it is with us parents. That's what God wants from us. God doesn't want our obedience. He wants our hearts. He wants us to return the love that He has for us. To do what is right because we trust Him and we love Him. That's why Jesus said, If you love Me, you will do as I have commanded you. Not because if you love Me, you'll do this. It doesn't work like that. But if you love, then you want to follow. That's what God wants from us. It's true that God gave the law, but that was only to teach us about how to relate to Him and to each other. It's there to guide us. It's there to serve as a guardian. But there are plenty of Old Testament scriptures that also remind us God wants our hearts. Look at what he says through two of the prophets. In Jeremiah, God says about his people who have broken the law, done what God told them not to do, are in captivity as a result. But this is what God said. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God and they shall return to me with their whole heart. And in that same captivity, Ezekiel says, and I will give them one heart. This is what God is saying through the prophet. I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, one that can respond to God, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Not because they have to, but because They choose to out of love. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. 
Well, that's the first reason why it's important that we understand the difference between submission and obedience. Here's the second reason. As I said at the end of the first point, submission reverses the curse of sin in the garden. If Adam and Eve had handled themselves differently, if they were submitted to the Lord, they would not have disobeyed God. They would have trusted God and rejected Satan and not eaten of the forbidden fruit. Now, if we think that submission to God, or the lack of it, is at the heart of sin, and we know that sin is pervasive, let me tell you that submission is a problem for people in general. Any of you who are in charge, if you're a parent, if you're a, a, a teacher, if you're in the medical profession, if you're, I don't know, anything, you, if you got a dog, like my dog, Edison. I named that dog Edison because they thought he was going to be smart. Uh-uh. Submission is a problem. You know, people will come to me as a pastor because I have a lot of training and experience in counseling, and they'll talk to me about their issues, and I will refer them to a counselor, and I will even tell them, look, if you don't make the connection with this counselor, that's okay, come back to me. The connection with the counselor is critically important to working through the issue. But give it a little time with the counselor, because you never know how you're going to connect, and you might not connect right away on the very first visit. It might take a few so, so give the person a little time. Here's the thing that happens. People don't want to listen to what the counselor has to tell them. They want to believe themselves rather than somebody else looking in who may have some experience and some wisdom and some knowledge. And because they won't listen, and they listen to themselves, and they're not in submission right, to an authority that they can trust, cares about them, loves them, wants to do what's good for them, they continue to do the same things over and over again and nothing changes. You know, I've told you that when God called me to the ministry, I was like shocked and angry and wrestling with God and I didn't get it. And you know, I was raised Catholic, so I had no clue what a Protestant minister was about. I only knew priests who smoked cigars and drank after hours. And I figured priests could get away with things that pastors probably can't. I don't have a clue. So as I was learning, God provided me with a mentor. And one of the things that I decided is, there's no way that I can get this whole pastoral thing down. I'm too much of a street kid. I mean, believe me when I tell you, I could survive in the, in the streets of Chicago. I get that world. Coming to church was a whole new world to me. And one of the things that I decided to do was I was going to trust my mentor no matter what he told me. 
I was going to believe him before I believed my own opinions. And I did that for five or six or seven years until I felt confident that I understood the training I was receiving and could start to evaluate some of these things so that I knew how to react and how to respond. And then I could start to make some decisions. And it was because I made the decision to trust him over myself that God was able to make great changes in me. Believe me when I tell you submission is a major issue for people. And it is at the core of why we don't change. And why sin persists. And why reaction patterns never go away. Because we resist being submitted to the authority of whoever God puts in our life who can help us. And of course, the authority of God. Submission to Jesus is what reverses the fall and reverses the curse that occurred in the Garden of Eden. I'll leave it at that. Here's the third thing. Submission to Jesus comes with the help of God's intervention. Matthew and Mark tell us in their gospel accounts that this young ruler, he went away after this, but all three gospels record what Jesus said after these events happened. And this is what we read. Jesus, seeing that the young man had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? The crowd was confused when Jesus said this. You see, people believed that God blessed the wealthy. He preferred them. Perhaps even they were less sinful than the average person. So they believed that the wealthy, the blessed people were closer to God than they were. And when they asked, who then can be saved? They were saying, well, if somebody who's preferred by God and blessed by God, it's impossible for them to get into heaven. Who can make it? How am I going to make it? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus' point in all of this was that hope rests with God, not with us. And the Scriptures teach that because of sin, every one of us is sunk anyways. But the Scriptures tell us that it is precisely God who does provide. It is what God has done that saves us, not us. The cross is God coming down into this realm, taking on human flesh to teach us about Himself, to show us what life means to be lived in the way that God intends for it, and then to become that atoning sacrifice upon the cross, taking on the wrath of God Himself. And we are saved when we believe that it's what God has done in the cross that has saved us. It is about trusting that God has provided a way. And Jesus said it's the way. 
And he would know because he is the only Son of God. If we are to be saved, if we are to be fully submitted, if we are to follow Jesus, then God must and will intervene for us. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit and not anything that I'm going to go into any depth about. But the Holy Spirit is the one who is constantly intervening in our lives, constantly assisting us, constantly revealing things to us. And he's involved in every aspect of our life from um, bringing us from an unregenerate place to a place of salvation to a place of sanctification, even, Scripture says, to a place of glorification. What do I mean by these big terms? Well, we know that salvation means to accept Jesus. Sanctification means to become more like Jesus. And glorification means to get a new body at the consummate. And I, I got a request in for Jesus about that. Here's the fourth and last point about submission. Submission to Jesus is joyful because he is the treasure beyond all treasures. Now at this point, I need to leave Luke and I need to take us to the Gospel of Matthew for two very quick parables that Jesus tells us about joy in the kingdom of heaven. This is what we read. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Why is joy the descriptor that we have chosen for submission in our definition of discipleship? Probably for the same reason that Jesus used joy to describe the kingdom of heaven. Because it is a natural, spiritual response to this relationship with God. The truth is, too many people are duty-bound. Duty-bound means to be morally and legally obligated. And I can tell you that throughout my years in the church, what I found was people were just duty-bound. They had a moral and legal obligation to follow Jesus. There was no joy in their life. But joy, joy is what naturally flows from love and relationship. How many of you have ever fell in love? Do you remember the insane time when you were just filled with joy? If you do, raise your hand. Some of you guys better get your hands up there because your wives are looking. <laughs> uh, joy is associated with relationship. It's a natural response to love. And God doesn't want our duty. He wants our love and a relationship with us. I can't tell you the number of times and it hurts me when I see this, when people are joyless, loveless, duty-bound in their faith with God. 
It's such a burden, you know, and it makes me sad because that's not what Jesus said. He said, come to me, right? My burden is easy. My yoke is light. That's because it's love. This past week, one of our members, Jim Warrington, was placed in hospice. He's been pretty sick for a long time. And if you know Jim, doesn't complain, just keeps walking with the Lord through it. Amazing guy. So, when he was told there's nothing more that can be done, we're putting you in hospice. And, you know, it's near the latter days of this whole thing. I came to the hospital. I sat with Jim and I said, and, and, I, and I said to him, so how you doing, Jim? And he looked at me and said, best day of my life. I mean, caught me off guard. I said, what? And he said, yeah, best day of my life. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. Jim gets it. He spent a life following Jesus. He spent it all. He's not excited to be leaving the people he's loved. I don't think he's excited to just be leaving here. Leaving here. But I do think he's excited to see the object of his faith, the fulfillment of his faith in Jesus. No longer walking by faith, but by sight, to be in his presence. He was filled with joy. And he thought, this is a great opportunity, so he was sharing with every doctor, nurse, and anybody he could about Jesus. He just wanted them to know. So he just asked them, you know where you're going when you die? Because he wanted to tell him. Because he knows he's going to heaven. Submission to Jesus is joyful because he's the treasure above all treasures. He's the object of our faith. Well, this just leaves application. What should we do if we want to be a genuine follower of Jesus? The text helps us out here as well. And I'm just going to read it very quickly and make some quick comments to it. And Peter said after the, um, Jesus said to the crowd, you know, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus was assuring Peter that because of his commitment and the commitment of those disciples that they would receive many blessings in this world and in the next. It's true that we have to lose our life. But what he gives us is a greater life. So much more, as Pastor Tim shared with us last week. So what should we do to be a genuine disciple of Jesus? Well, I wish that that young ruler had done what the disciples were doing and hung out with Jesus. And I would just say to you, stay close to Jesus. 
It's the only way to follow Him. If you're not staying close, you don't know where to go. You're going to lose sight of Him. So stay close to Jesus. How do you do that? Stay in the Word. Jesus is the living Word, and the Bible is the written Word. And they align. This is what we like to think of in that mission statement when we talk about discipling in the Word. It's being discipled in Jesus, discipled in the written Word. Stay connected to the body of Christ. None of us can save ourselves. None of us can be fully submitted to Jesus without the help of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who moves us into community with each other. The Holy Spirit is the one who talks and encourages us through each other, who helps us to understand His Word and helps us to live and to apply it, be with each other. So we need to stay connected to the body of Christ. Those two things will help us stay close to Jesus. Here's the second thing. Know that the work to be done in you, only God can do. I want you to trust that God will do it in you as you give yourself over to Him in your heart. Now, your heart is not the emotional center of your life. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about heart like the Bible word. It's the place where mind and spirit, and will all come together. If you will trust God there, that He'll do a work in you, He will do it until the day you're called home. And you will continue in that sanctifying process, that becoming more and more like Jesus. And then lastly, know that growing and joyful submission is a process. It's a process. God is going to confront you in your life where you are not in submission to Him. For some of you, it will be your fears. For some of you, it will be your anger. For some of you, it will be your possessions. For others of you, it will be the, the, the idols you make out of your children or out of your spouse. It will be those things which are not submitted under God's authority. That you're acting outside of that. And God will show you those things. And your response then is to get on your knees like that rich young ruler. But unlike him to say, yes, you are God. So I bring this to you. I don't know how I'm going to get over it, but I'm trusting that you'll help me with it. And God will. And He'll have people around you who will confront you all over the place. He'll give you a wife like mine. (laughs) It's good. It's just hard sometimes. Right? And He'll give you good friends who will speak the truth too. But understand that it's a process. And in that process comes great joy. And the joy is knowing that you are walking with the Lord. He hasn't left you. You know, the thing that has amazed me so much is that throughout this, my whole life, God has never left me and never failed me. 
I can't say that I have not left him. I can't say that I have not failed him. But I can say he has never done the other. And as I get older, and as I look to that time when the Lord calls me home, that's a great comfort to me to know that even when I face the last test and trial of this life, he won't forsake me and he won't fail me. And though I can't do it with others, I can do it with him because Jesus will be with me. And Jim knows that, doesn't he? He knows that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being such a good and gracious God. We thank you for making a way for us and for helping all of us, Jesus, to be able to come into a relationship with God. There is no sin too great, nor any number of sins um, too large, nor even what we have difficulty understanding in ourselves that you cannot forgive if we will come to you and repent of it. We thank you, Jesus, for this. And I pray that uh, you'll help each and every one of us, Lord, to submit to you joyfully, joyfully, as you help us to grow into becoming more and more like Jesus. Help us as a church to not only teach this, but to be this. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.